ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, a thousand jobs set to be lost as Alcoa shuts down one of its West Australian alumina refineries. Also, with floodwaters moving slowly downstream in central and northern Victoria, the clean-up is underway. And we meet the eight-year-old scientist whose study of a swooping magpie went viral. He's been going to school for a long time. He's been swooping all the dads. Yeah, I noticed they were swooping and I wondered why, so I decided to find out. Like, who do they swoop? Where do they target? About a 1,000 Australian workers are set to lose their jobs after the US mining giant Alcoa announced it'll end production at one of its three West Australian alumina refineries. The company says the age and operating costs of the Quinana plant south of Perth are to blame, as well as a slump last year in aluminium prices. The WA government's rejecting accusations that environmental laws are partly to blame for for the decision, and that claim is being backed by Alcoa. Jacqueline Breen reports. For decades, the Quinana refinery has been a major employer in an industrial strip by the sea in southern Perth. Many workers live in nearby Rockingham, where Deb Hamlin is the local mayor. Oh, really disappointed. You know, after 60 years, it will be a big loss. After days of rumours and speculation, the company announced this morning that production at the refinery will stop later this year. 750 Alcoa employees will lose their jobs and hundreds more contractors on top of that. Alcoa's always been a bit of a landmark employer for um, for our region, and that's not just Rockingham, but Rockingham and Quinana and Coburn. So um, there'll be a lot of um, anxiety and uh, people have worked there all their lives. Well, this is disappointing. It's a disappointing decision by the uh, Alcoa board. WA Premier Roger Cook is also the local member for the area and says he was told of the decision by phone last night. But he says it was no secret the refinery's future had been under a cloud. What they did explain, and we all know, is that that is one of Alcoa's oldest uh, refineries uh, in terms of their global operations. It employs uh, particularly um, old technology, which challenges the commerciality of that particular refinery. Alcoa's Executive Vice President Matt Reid visited the facility today. It's a pretty difficult day for our people, and particularly our people down at Quinana. We've made that decision for a range of factors, uh, the age of the plant, the, the scale, cost base and, uh, and the great challenges we have as well. Last year, the refinery recorded a pre-tax loss of $190 million and since January has been operating at 80% of capacity. Alcoa's Matt Reid rejected suggestions that environmental approval processes played a part in the plant's demise. Yeah, not at all. There's a range, as I said, of issues. Uh, the facility's been challenged for uh, some considerable period of time. We have stated that uh, in the past. It's, a, it's an ageing facility. It's, it's probably really subscale. Uh, it has cost challenges uh, as well as grade challenges. Across Australia, Alcoa has nearly 5,000 employees, 4,300 of those in WA. 
The two remaining refineries in WA at Pindera and Wagerup will keep operating as normal. That's where the union is hoping some of the workers from Quinana can be redeployed. We've got two very significant world-scale, world-class refineries in Pinjara and Wagerup. It's our intention to continue to operate those uh, in the long term. Professor Alan Trench is a minerals economist at the University of Western Australia. I think it's... Um principally a, a story of microeconomics. Uh, and again, it's an economically rational decision. Again, it's a hard one for, for employees, but it's principally a business where you make alumina for $300 or thereabouts. And you, if you're lucky, maybe close to 330 at the moment, and you're selling it for 330 to 350. So it's a pretty low margin business. Quinana being the oldest of refineries, has been reported as being the higher cost one and therefore it's the one of the three that that sort of gets put onto care and maintenance. So purely an economic decision. What's going on more broadly and, and what's the future of alumina refining, aluminium manufacturing in Australia? Um, we know or I understand it's a, a process that requires a lot of energy and there's a lot changing in that space. Um, I'm actually... Um, quite optimistic for the industry. I say it's not, if, if those in the industry, excuse me saying, it's not the most exciting industry because it grows at, you know, 1%, 2% a year. It's a, it's a mature industry. And if you look back at the Illumina Limited, who are a part owner along with Alcoa of these plants, they report their um, carbon emissions, for example, from these plants and their costs. And they've been showing that their carbon emissions have been falling through various initiatives taken, including using more renewable energy for the plants. So that, that augurs well for the long-term future of uh, alumina refining um, in Australia. It is cost competitive. I'm not, don't want to put any fear into anyone. This is not, not the end of alumina refining uh, in Australia. Professor Alan Trench from the University of Western Australia. Jacqueline Breen reporting. Now to Victoria's flood crisis and residents of the northern town of Rochester are being told it's too late to leave as the emergency continues. Yesterday, some residents were forced to flee the central Victorian towns of Seymour and Ye, but warnings there have now been downgraded. This report from Luke Siddham-Dundon. The last two days have given residents in central and northern Victoria flashbacks to the floods of 15 months ago. And while the threat isn't over, many across the state now face another big clean-up. The creek's still very high. You know, all I can see is my fence is down, logs everywhere. My spa's been, was floated, so that's been moved. Very messy and muddy. Joseph Etier runs a bed and breakfast next to the river in Ye, northeast of Melbourne. Like in 2022, his home, raised on stumps, has been spared from the floodwaters, but that hasn't left him unscathed. Because I hire my Ye River Cottage as a B&B, all my personal stuff's kept outside in the garage. Because what happens is when I get a booking, I live in my caravan. Everything in the garage is all wet, my desk, my fridge, everything was floating. You know, the water gone up to about 1.5 metre high. Six homes have been flooded in Ye, while in nearby Seymour, four residential properties left unoccupied after the last major floods have been flooded once again. Half a dozen businesses have also been inundated. Sam Vecchio was one of the lucky ones watching the water come within half a metre of his Seymour restaurant before it receded earlier today. Quite honestly, if it had have come inside... That would have been the end. I would have not been able to come back from it. 
Sam Vecchio says the 2022 floods cost him more than $150,000 in lost trade for the weeks that he was closed and another $100,000 in damaged equipment. I've gone and put myself into so much debt and I obviously panic every day that we're not going to be able to cover the debt. We actually still have equipment here that is still got mud in it from 2022 because we haven't been able to get an insurance payout for certain equipment items. Every day that I open up uh, one of my ovens, it reminds me of 2022. But for some residents across Victoria, memories of 2022 are being replaced with the shock of this year's disaster. Rhiannon Drake and her husband Daniel live in a small town called Guanong in northern central Victoria. In the early hours of yesterday morning, she realised that while she'd been sleeping, her house had been flooding. I didn't know it yet, but the house was completely full. And then I had a call from the CFA at quarter past three asking how I was going. So I thought, oh, I might actually have to answer that one and sat up and put my feet in calf deep water. She said they had no idea it was going to be that bad. We talked to the CFA, we had sandbagged just in case, we put some plastic around some of the entrances. We did have something similar in 2022. They were expecting it to be not as bad as that time, but now end up being twice as bad and then a bit more. The couple were evacuated by the water police a couple of hours later. Since Sunday night, SES volunteers have responded to more than 1,750 requests for assistance. 52 of them have been flood rescues. One emergency warning remains for the northern Victorian town of Rochester, where residents are being told it's now too late to leave. The water supply has also been turned off in the town to protect critical infrastructure. Victorian SES Chief Officer Tim Weebush says attention is now turning to Shepparton, where a number of properties are under threat. In and around the Kyalata Shepparton area, we could see up to 20 properties that may see above floor flooding as a result of that moderate high-end flooding on the Goulburn River. A further 150 properties could potentially see flooding in their streets and or onto their properties. Authorities say the flooding could continue in that region for the next couple of days. Luke Sidham, Dundon, with that report. Well, for anyone looking for an affordable rental property, there was more bad news today. The latest data from research company PropTrack showed capital city rents soared last year by more than 13%, well above the rate of inflation. Perth saw the biggest increase in rents over the year, up by 20%. They were followed by Melbourne at 18% and Sydney at nearly 17%. Hobart was the only capital to see a fall in rental prices down there almost 5%. And in regional areas, rents were up by more than 4%. So what can be done to get more Australians into affordable rental properties? Dr Chris Martin is a senior research fellow at the City Futures Research Centre at the University of New South Wales. He wants Australian governments to come up with a much more ambitious policy agenda to tackle housing affordability. We need a much bigger investment in our social housing sector. That is the non-market rental housing provider that that provides rental housing to 
particularly to people on low and moderate incomes, and secure accommodation as well because the private sector is chronically insecure and unaffordable housing. Who needs to act on that? Is it the federal government? Is it state governments? Or do they need to come together, federal and state? They, they need to come together. In our system of government, it's the, the states who deliver this housing. They, they own a lot of it. They, they deliver it. The federal government, though, is where the, the, the money for it you know, really has to come from because for the, for the low-income households that live in social housing, what they can reasonably afford to pay in rent doesn't cover the cost of running the system in a decent way, let alone growing it to meet the growing needs of developing more housing for a growing population. So it's really that the federal government needs to apply its fiscal power to really get the states moving on on growing their social housing sectors again after literally decades of stagnation in those sectors. There's been recently uh, some developments like there's a social housing accelerator fund that the, the, the Albanese government introduced. Of course, the, the Housing Australia Future Fund is another innovation. But these things, uh, the scale of them is is not up to the scale of that unmet housing need problem. Does tackling the, the shortage of social housing, improving that supply, automatically fix the middle of the range rental shortage for we know a lot of people are, are working good jobs at the moment but still struggling to pay their rent does that have a flow on effect ultimately what we should be aiming for is a social housing sector that uh, accommodates people further up the income scale than 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 it currently does currently it's confined to serving you know very low income and really crisis affected households so having a a social housing sector that is much bigger and serves many more people, including many more income groups than, than our current system. I think that's really got to be the one of those ambitious goals for our housing policy. Last month, the federal government announced uh, its new migration strategy to restrict the number of people coming into Australia. Do you think bringing migration numbers down is going to make a, a difference in the short term to the availability and affordability of rental properties? Migration and what it has lately added to demand for housing is, I mean, that that's definitely part of our housing affordability challenge. But the other part of it is that so many of our policy settings don't facilitate bringing supply to meet that new demand. So, Dr Martin, finally, the outlook for 2024. Are you seeing any signs that it'll become easier for Australians to find an affordable rental property? (laughs) Trying to be optimistic about this, I guess the public conversation has changed and the policy conversation is starting to change as well. Uh, Looking ahead this year, we've got the federal government has committed to producing a national housing and homelessness plan. Um, The early signs from from that process, to be frank, weren't great. The, the, the first uh, discussion paper that came out of the government missed a whole lot of stuff that really needs to be looked at in terms of improving our housing policy settings. It, it didn't mention tax or housing finance or, or any any number of the things we've we've just been talking about now. So hopefully, when we when we see that plan this year, that it will have more ambition to it. So many people throughout Australia who are increasingly talking about um, particularly the rental housing as as their long-term housing option and how it hasn't been good enough in terms of affordability outcomes 
or the, the security it offers or their ability to make a home in rental housing. I remain optimistic that policymakers will be hearing that more and more this year and into next year as we head to a federal election. Dr Chris Martin from the University of New South Wales. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Just a reminder, you can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ahead, we'll hear from an eight-year-old scientist who's mad about magpies. To the US now, where United Airlines says it's found loose bolts and other installation issues on some Boeing 737 MAX 9s during inspections. The findings come after an Alaskan Airlines flight had to make an emergency landing after a door plug blew out mid-flight. The aircraft have since been grounded while more investigations are carried out. Elizabeth Cramsey has more. When residents in the Portland suburb of Cedar Hills were asked to search their yards for a piece of a plane, high school science teacher Bob Sawyer didn't think he'd actually find anything. So it was dark by that time and I went out and I got my flashlight and went around to the back, which is very dark because I planted a forest back there. But in the flashlight uh, beam, I could see that there was something uh, gleaming white uh, underneath the trees in the back that isn't normally there. And when I went to investigate it, it was very obviously part of a plane. It had the same curvature as a fuselage. It had a a plane-type window in it. um, And it was white, uh, which is why it was gleaming. What he found was a door plug that had blown out of a Boeing 737 MAX 9 during an Alaskan Airlines flight from Portland to Ontario. Keith Tonkin from Aviation Projects explains what a door plug is. The 737 MAX 9 can carry up to 220 passengers. In that full 220 passenger configuration, it requires five sets of emergency exit doors, two at the front, four over the wings, one right at the back and another pair between the wing and the the rear of the aircraft. And Alaska Airlines operates that same aircraft in a three-class configuration and they don't need that that mid-cabin pair of doors to be operational. So they remove the exit doors and replace those doors with a plug, which is just a panel that's bolted in. Those plugs are removable, so the airline can go back and change the configuration if necessary down the track. As Mr Tonkin explains, other airlines have identified issues since the incident. The plug itself is secured by four bolts, and I've seen images of the the plug because it's been found, and it's intact. So it seems as though the plug itself has maintained its shape, so it hasn't failed. And it would appear that the bolts, for some reason, haven't secured it properly. And we also know recently that United Airlines, in the course of conducting inspections of the plug on its aircraft, has found some loose bolts. Since Friday's incident, the aircraft has been grounded. So what happens now? Well, there's been an emergency airworthiness directive issued by the Federal Aviation Administration, which applies to Boeing as the aircraft manufacturer. And other countries, aviation regulators have applied that same requirement for the aircraft operators to inspect the plugs of these aircraft where they've been fitted to make sure that they're fitted properly. And the information that's coming back will likely inform the next steps for the FAA. Um, But I guess if the plugs are secured properly and the FAA deems that they're safe to operate in operational aircraft, then they'll allow those aircraft to fly again.
This isn't the first time Boeing has gone under the microscope. Two Max 8s crashed in separate incidents in 2018 in Indonesia and 2019 in Ethiopia, killing 346 people. Those aircraft were grounded until Boeing made changes to the automated flight control system. Keith Tonkin says aviators expect more from the company. It's a bit concerning that this plug in the fuselage of the aircraft is having difficulties because that's not an innovative thing. They've been around for a long time and there's enough corporate knowledge in the world of aviation to be able to make sure that they don't come out. There are no MAX 9s flown by any airline in Australia. Dr Sonia Brown is a senior lecturer in aerospace design at UNSW Sydney. She says travellers should be comforted by the thorough safety checks currently underway. What has happened since and what we've seen is that every one of these 737 MAX 9 aircraft that have these plugs installed has been taken out of service and required to have these detailed inspections before they can be put back in service. And that is what actually gives us a level of safety, is that everything that happens, particularly on commercial aircraft, is investigated and, you know, looked at to make sure that going forward we don't have repeats of the same things. Dr Sonia Brown from UNSW Sydney ending that report from Elizabeth Cramsey. In Western Australia's north, the towns of Broome and Derby could soon face new liquor restrictions. Police have previously called for tougher rules in parts of regional WA in an attempt to curb alcohol fueled violence. But as Isabel Masali reports, the plans are being met with backlash from local retailers. On the streets of Broome in WA's Kimberley, there's mixed reaction to news it could soon be under new liquor restrictions. I think it is a good idea, considering what happens in town. Drives drinking underground into the back streets. What the society really needs is supervised drinking, you know, um, responsible service and places where people can drink. That's the need, and these sort of things don't meet it, but banning bottles is a good thing. And probably cutting back um, more days as well, you know, maybe a day during the week as well would be good idea. I think they're a bit much. I think for people that like to go for a drink, especially on a Sunday, um, you're kind of punishing those for other people that can't handle their drink. Um, As well, I work in a bar, so that means I'm going to get my hours cut. So that means I now get less money for this proposal, so I'm not on board. The state's director of liquor licensing has proposed limiting takeaway alcohol sales along with reducing trading hours to between midday and 7 o'clock at night. This would apply to Broome and Derby, but Derby would also see the sale of alcohol banned on Sundays and Mondays. Derby pub owner and member of the local liquor accord, Emmanuel Dillon, is concerned about the impact on business. I've been an advocate that if, if Derby was ever to have a day off of selling alcohol, it should be on the day that welfare payments are made. I think that's the, the targeted day um, that we should do it, um, not on a Sunday. Uh, Sundays when you know most people want to have a beer or watch the footy, come around have a barbecue the Australian way. Um, we spend all this countless of millions of dollars on tourism, um, but then people turn up to to Broome and Derby and they can't buy alcohol on, on Sundays. The people just can't fathom it. In recent months, police have requested tough liquor restrictions across parts of regional WA amid a surge in alcohol-fueled violence and crime. The state's Premier, Roger Cook, supports the measures, saying the misuse of alcohol is having a significant social and economic impact across the community. 
Broomshire President Chris Mitchell believes the restrictions should be the same across the region, but says it's a step in the right direction. And realistically, if you can drink a, a block, 30, 30 cans of beer a day, then you, you, you've got a serious alcohol problem. So it's not just about the individuals. Um, a lot of the children are being neglected through no food, uh, the violence at home through alcohol. So we've got to try and come up with a safer system for the community as a whole. Dr John Boffer says the measures are necessary but not sufficient. He's an adjunct professor of primary health care at Charles Darwin University and is a spokesperson for the reform group, the People's Alcohol Action Coalition. Look, I think it's incredibly important that Western Australia um, takes the lead on this um, and learns from the experience of the Northern Territory because of the unacceptably high rates of domestic violence and other violence that's been reported. But I think the most important restriction of all is the reduction in takeaway trading hours. And so the actual two takeaway free days in Derby will have a big impact, as well the, re the total reduction in takeaway trading hours across the, both, both regions. The volumetric limits are also useful, but not as significant. And so it is important that they consider doing more, I think, as well in Broome and extending the takeaway free days to Broome and not just having the volumetric limits. What do you make of the argument that it takes people's freedom away? Uh, look, I think we've got to be obviously very conscious of individual liberties, individual freedoms, but the freedom to choose or to be able to buy alcohol 24-7 whenever people like has to be counted and has to be balanced by the fact that women and children in particular have got to be a right to be free from violence. Licensees in Broome and Derby have until February 23 to respond to the proposal before a final decision is made. Here's Will Masali reporting. What's known as community science can help us unlock some pretty quirky mysteries of the natural world, and here's a good example. It all started with an 80-year-old girl in the Blue Mountains west of Sydney and her investigation into a very aggressive swooping magpie. She wanted to figure out how and why magpies choose their targets. She came up with some interesting findings. It turns out the birds apparently like to swoop men a bit short of hair up top. Now her primary school project is getting attention around the world. This report from Tom Melville. Groups are not starting to come a bit closer, but he's still a little bit far. In the Blue Mountains village of Wentworth, eight-year-old Emma Glenfield is with her mother and her teacher, looking for a now famous resident magpie. His name is Mr Swoopsalot, the bird that first got Emma curious about swooping, but they can't find him. So we head inside to talk about him instead. He's been going to school for a long time. He's been swooping all the dads. And is that sort of what started you on this? Yeah. Yeah, I noticed they were swooping and I wondered why, so I decided to find out. So that was your question? That was yeah. your first question? Why are they doing this? Yeah, and like, who do they swoop? Where do they target? Enter Mr Carr, Emma's Year 3 maths teacher at Blue Mountains Grammar. Every year he gets his students to do a major project and Emma's was based on her very reasonable question, do dangerous things mean to hurt you? Emma came up with three ideas for her project and being short, stocky and bald, the magpie situation, we have a magpie here on campus, Mr swoops a lot, who does swoop me. So I wanted some answers and Emma was going to provide those for us. So I was uh, really excited about that project. 
To get her research started, Emma went into the field. I watched, like, the people that he swooped and I recorded it. Like, I figured out that they were male, they were tall and they had thinner receding hair. Emma's mum, Christy, got involved too. We just did a survey on Survey Monkey, and she, she went from there, um, developed a flyer and we went down to the local park and she started speaking to people in the park and asking them to do the survey on their phone. Emma asked respondents how old they were, how tall, what hairstyles they had, how much they weighed and whether they were hurt as a result of the swooping. Emma came to school with a, a QR code and asked all the students to fill it out and the teachers. She was so excited when there were 150 uh, students and teachers who had, who had completed the uh, questionnaire. Of course, it didn't stop at 150 people. The following day, I walked Emma out to the gate to meet Mum and uh, Mum said that, um, yeah, it's gone viral and there are over 30,000 people who have um, participated in the survey. So that was really exciting. Tens of thousands of people from right around the world did the survey and sent Emma their responses. I couldn't believe it. So I jumped on um, online and, and read some of the comments, which were quite entertaining, uh, and lots of, um, lots of interesting stories about the, the magpies and, and how and when they swoop. So what did Emma find? Being eight and not super on top of Excel spreadsheets just yet, Emma found a special way to present her data. We're looking at a Lego sheet that's about a bit smaller than an A4 piece of paper. Talk me through what we're looking at. Um, well, it's a chart of, like, the results. So there's, like, bald on top, no hair, short hair, shoulder height or long hair. And you can see very clearly on these charts that you've made that people with less hair yeah. are getting swooped more often. Yeah, that's what I figured out. As it turns out, it's the first time ever in Australia anyone has examined the link between magpie swooping and appearance. But Emma's survey also asked respondents to rate magpies out of 10. And as it turns out, everybody loves magpies as much as Emma does. A lot of people who have been never swooped love magpies. Also, people who have been swooped and not hurt love it. And also, well, all well, people who have been swooped and hurt, swooped and not hurt, and never swooped, actually love magpies a lot. And so Emma Glenfield's curiosity not only solved a mystery, but united thousands in their love for magpies. Great work by Emma. Tom Melville with that report. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. Good night.